Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right, so we are going to continue our journey into some of the heart-mind qualities that the Buddha talked about as being prerequisites, if you will, for the Eightfold Path. So basically, there are the seven factors of awakening, which are heart-mind qualities that, of course, we cultivate in our practice. But then there's this list of, well, there are really two lists of qualities the Buddha attributed to a good student. And what he means by this is these are the qualities that we need to get in touch with in order for the Eightfold Path to really be effective. And these were the qualities he sort of required, for lack of a better word, of his students in pursuing this particular journey. And the first two we talked about in the last two weeks, those other two podcasts, those are posted. One was truthfulness. The Buddha asked that his students be truthful with themselves and with others, and a commitment to be observant, to truly be observant of what is so about the world. And those podcasts are up. If you haven't seen them, you can grab those. I think they're really informative. So today we're going to talk about another quality, which is uh, Samwega. And it's actually Samwega and Pasada. And I'll spell them in case you, I know most of you are familiar, but Samwega is actually S-A-M-V-E-G-A and Pasada, P-A-S-A-D-A. Samwega and Pasada. And I'll explain what these emotions are. They're yeah, they're complicated. There's no literal translation from the English, so I'm going to have to explain. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to give you a whole Dharma talk to define them. <laughs> uh, the last time I talked about this was on one of our retreats when we did our Anicca retreat, I think last year. We had a little module on this. And I like talking about these because these, Samwega and Pasada, are essentially the energizing emotions that the Buddha experienced that encouraged him to go on his journey. That's why I think they're so important. And they're they're not really talked about that often. So I'm going to remind us of how these work because they're on the list and I think it's important. So I, when I talk about these two qualities, I usually talk about this in context of the Buddha's journey because I think it's easier to really understand what these words mean if we can see the, the context out of which they spring. Crash course in the Buddha's journey. The Buddha's journey, right? So the Buddha's a prince and the king asks the uh, Brahmins to predict his son's future. And the Brahmins say that his son is either going to be a great king or a great spiritual leader. And the king, of course, wants his son to follow in his footsteps and does not want him to be a great spiritual leader. He would rather him inherit uh, his role as being king. So he confines the Buddha to the palace and surrounds him with sensual entertainment and pleasures to both distract him from the suffering of the world and from leaving. So he's kind of locked in here into the palace. And it was natural and common at the time of the Buddha that mostly men, but also women, but mostly men would renounce and go take the robes and go do the spiritual path. And 
there was already support for women at that time, but it was limited. Uh, the Jain tradition had a significant infrastructure that supported women. And the Buddha's support of bhikkhunis also was modeled uh, in relationship to that. But basically, this was a, a man's world. And so it was mostly men who would do this, who would go off. And so it wouldn't have been unlikely that someone like the Buddha, Prince Siddhartha, would have done this. So his dad's like, no, you're not going to associate with the rabble-rousing spiritual folk. You're going to stay in the kingdom. <laughs> Instead of protecting him from... I don't know, that classic, like, I don't want my kid hanging out with those using drugs or listening to, like, loud music or hard rock or whatever the generation is. You know, it's like, I'm going to surround you with luxury so you don't leave the castle so you don't see that life is filled with suffering. So it's a different kind of teenage story. But basically, like all young folk, he, he sneaks out, of course, and he goes on a chariot ride with Chana, his charioteer, and... He has these experiences of the foresights and he sees an old person, a sick person. He sees a corpse and then he sees a wandering mendicant, a renunciate. And his response, of course, is to be shocked by the suffering because he's been in the palace. He's been locked away. There's been a sense of denial and protection of him from the outside world. So this is his supposedly first experience with these things. And of course, if we think of the details of this, we could immediately poke holes in the rationale for the story. So let's just look at the psychological truths, not the literal truths. But let's suppose he had, hadn't recognized that people were aging and he saw an old person uh, for the first time. It was like, whoa, what is this? So Chana explains to him that all human beings, aging, illness, death, and that some folks do pursue this spiritual path where they renounce material world and sensuality and they pursue a higher form of happiness. So the basic lessons that arise here for us, just in the simple metaphor of the Buddha, is that the Buddha, the Buddha himself kind of represents our own longings and the own, our own tendencies of the human heart and the human mind. And so what we see here in the relationship between the king and the Buddha is this natural tendency to want to protect ourselves from suffering. So the Buddha is kind of in this in this context, our own heart, right? Our own mind. We don't have this natural tendency to want to go see and dwell in the suffering of the world. We want to escape from it. We want to protect ourselves from it. We, we tend to wall up the heart, of course. Um, and when we do experience suffering, we're like, yeah, please, no more of that. So we tend to avoid it, right? It's a hand on a hot stove. We don't necessarily reach out for it. And certainly, once we do, do not want to have that experience again. So the fact that he is prevented from seeing this represents this symbolic aspect of all of us where our hearts don't want to suffer. We don't want to have the suffering of aging and illness and death, and we don't want to watch loved ones and people we care about go through that. So there's this natural tendency to not want to do that, to stay in denial. And then the other symbol here is this natural inclination also to not only push away suffering and not be exposed to it, but to take this alternative route, which is wealth and sensuality and power, to protect ourselves, to have a sense of control, and to be surrounded by as much pleasure as possible. This is another aspect of the human heart, the longing for sense pleasures and lots of them, and creating a life where we can be surrounded in some way or another by a wealth of sensuality, whether that wealth is money, sense experiences, whatever that the pleasure is, having a lot of it and access to it and repetitive experiences 
is the way that the heart is designed. So we see in this surrounding of the Buddha, this metaphor of the way the heart enjoys having contact with sensual pleasures and can get lost and distracted so much so that we forget about the outside world, that there's suffering outside of ourselves. And then one other aspect I think it's important just as symbol is that it really shows that there are these two paths. Denial, where you could run back to the castle after you see suffering, or you can choose something different, a different life, a different way of living in the world, which is following the mendicant or following the path of the spiritual seeker. So right in that first little summary of the Buddha's teachings, we see all this symbolism of how the heart and mind function, and his journey then becomes our journey where we also make this decision moment to moment to let go of the happiness that is conditioned on sensuality and trade up for a higher happiness. So we, we relive, in a sense, the Buddha's decision to take those robes and to walk the path in our own life, metaphorically, and sometimes to a degree, obviously, literally. So these emotions that I was talking about, this Samwega and Pasada, these emotions are what the Buddha experienced when he witnesses the four sights. These emotions are what come up in him and allow him to take his journey. So I'm going to explain how this is defined from the, the Pali, because there isn't really an English translation of these that works very well. So oftentimes when we translate the, the term Samwega, there's three different qualities that are combined. The first one is shock. The shock the Buddha experienced when he really experienced suffering deeply for the first time. And that shock is followed by a sense of kind of despair and futility. It's heavy. It's really a powerful, almost debilitating sense of suffering. And in the context of the mythology, the Buddha never having seen it, when he suddenly sees that there is so much suffering in the human experience, that's really jarring to him. And for us, as not being literally in his shoes, what it's invoking is that feeling you have when you really open up your heart and you touch the suffering of the world and you really feel the enormity of it. You know those moments where you're like, oh my God, there's just so much damn suffering. Like... There's so much suffering. And so that's part of it is the shock of the weight of the enormity of the human experience and really feeling into that. That's part of this Samwega is this vulnerability of like, oh my gosh, there is a lot of dukkha here. There's a lot of suffering in the human experience. So that's part of it. That's one quality, this sort of shock followed by a yikes sensation, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is like heavy stuff. So that's the first kind of quality. The second one is really interesting. It's translated as a sense of regret. I don't think that's a great translation. What it really is, is the sense that the Buddha had of, oh my gosh, how could I have not seen this? How, how did I not see? It's that feeling that we have when we've been in denial about something and we suddenly wake up to it and have this kind of sense of, man, I wish I would have figured that out earlier in my life. You know, if I just would have known that 10 years ago, or if someone would have just told me back when I was a kid, or it's that kind of moment. So it is a sense of regret, but not that kind of like 
oh my God, I'm stupid for not knowing it. Or it's, it's not that kind of self-deprecating regret. It's just that sense of, wow, how could I have not seen this? And I really wish I would have seen this sooner, that there's so much suffering in the world. I just didn't know. So there's that symbolism of the Buddha not really seeing. And we recapitulate that experience willingly in our own practice to lean into suffering and have this experience of like, wow, I didn't realize I was creating harm for myself in this way. Or I didn't realize I wasn't acting skillful in this other way. So it's that insight that we have and waking up to it and having a sense, oh man, I wish I would have known that sooner. So how do you translate that into a word? You can't really translate. Maybe there's a word for it. it. Regret is the way it's translated. But as you can see, it's not regret. It's just, I wish I would have seen something sooner is really what it is. So shock at the enormity of suffering. A sense of like, wow, I can't believe I didn't see this before. I really wish I would have had this awakening. And then the third quality is urgency. So you feel the weight of the suffering you really are, in a sense, grateful for having had the realization. And that energy turns into a urgency to get out, an urgency to practice, an urgency to say, wow, I really hope that there is a way out of suffering. That is the quality of Samwega. So it's the shock. It's the, oh my gosh, how did I not know this? And, oh, I hope there's a way out of this. I really want to find one. And that energy of that trinity of qualities is in part what then motivates the Buddha to follow the mendicant when he sees the mendicant. So we're invited, the reason the Buddha says, hey, this is a significant quality in your practice. Because if we, in response to suffering, run back to the castle, which is what the heart normally does, the heart is normally like, oh, wow, aging, illness, death, all kinds of suffering, lamentation, sorrow. I'm just going to go back to the, to the castle and get on my PS3 and like play some video games. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in contact with this. So Samwega is the opposite energy. It's like, no, you're going to feel it. You're going to be humbled by it. And you're going to be motivated to move and keep going. Because if you look at the story of the Buddha on his little <laughs> chariot journey, he doesn't, at any of the points where he sees deeper and deeper suffering, he never asks to turn back. He never says, let's not go further. He keeps going further. And that's part of this analogy of freedom that we have to move through and be willing to take the journey through suffering, witness suffering, bear suffering, in order to get this motivation and energy to practice some type of spiritual you know, meditation or whatever one chooses to then see if we can get out and find some long-term happiness and well-being. So then there's this paired emotion and the other part is pasada. So if Samwega is the first impact when he sees these three types of suffering, pasada is the emotion when he sees the mendicant. So pasada is usually translated as confidence. I, it, that's okay. We could call it confidence. But I think experientially what it refers to is a sense of hope and a sense of clarity that maybe there's a way out, that there's a path. So he sees the suffering and there's this urgency of like, whoa, I would really like to get out of this. And then he sees the mendicant and that gives him a sense of clarity that, oh, there's a path. Maybe there is a way out. And he becomes hopeful and he becomes interested 
So when they say that pasada is clarity or confidence, it's clarity that there's another way of living and confidence to pursue and at least take a shot at it. Because as we know, and we forget this so easily, that the Buddha didn't know whether or not the enlightenment he was seeking was possible. This was totally a question. It wasn't guaranteed. And if the stories are correct in any way, shape, or form, he almost killed himself doing it. And it was not easy. Years and years and years of practice. It wasn't like he went, took robes, and was like, woohoo, you know, a summer season and he's done. It was years of practice before he went off and developed his own sort of path. So these emotions are the response to suffering and the response to the possibility that there might be a path out of awakening. So you can see why Samwega and Pasada as heart-mind qualities would really be helpful if we consider ourselves a student of the Dharma, a student of meditation. Because if we, if we don't think that there's a way out, if we don't at least believe it's possible, if we don't look at suffering and ask ourselves truly, wow, is this worth something transcending? Is it worth getting beyond? Then the rest of the path, no matter how skillful we practice, is going to be challenging. We need to have that fire to our feet, so to speak, to get energized to practice. And so uh, Samwega and Pasada are considered the energizing factors that lead to skillful effort. Skillful effort is built on this willingness to see suffering and the willingness to try to get out. And we can tie this back to the previous couple Dharma talks on truthfulness and a willingness to observe. When we see suffering, are we willing to really observe its depth? Are we really willing to be vulnerable in the face of it? And are we willing to act truthfully on the other side? Are we willing to take that energy and make the spiritual decision? So this really ties into so much of the Buddha's journey and into the energy that's behind the commitment to the Eightfold Path. When I talk about this heart-mind quality, I always like to offer its opposite because the opposite emotions are where we tend to hide. <laughs> and I think it's helpful to find out where we hide. I always like to discover that I'm hiding, which happens all the, t happens all the time, actually. But it's good to know, yes, there's this energy, but if that energy isn't alive in me, what might be alive instead? Where else would my heart kind of hide out if it's not really invoking this energy of Samwega and Pasada? Where would I be then on this spectrum? So when we look at the story of the Buddha, we see that the Buddha is held in the castle by his father and prevented from getting out. So this is a psychological symbol for denial. The Buddha does not even know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's outside the castle walls. So he's just living, living his life like, woo, life is sensuality. Life is all of this entertainment. Life is pretty much I can get what I want. So the symbol of him in the castle is denial. This is we don't realize that we are pushing away the witnessing of dukkha. And that is the natural's heart inc heart's inclination is to push away. And as I've talked about before, the nature of blind spots is that they're blind and we don't know them. And often when we acknowledge we have blind spots, we presume we know what they are. We know what they are. So the, the, the denial here, being in the castle, is a blind spot. We don't have the ability to see what's going on. And there is a spectrum of denial. 
And for most of us, if we're not really energized in spiritual practice, we might be experiencing a desire for distraction. We love to be distracted by stuff. So if you, I've had so many periods in my life where I was welcoming distraction so much. It's like, oh, I just want a new episode of something or a new experience or a new book or whatever the case may be. When we're not leaning towards that feeling of samwega, oftentimes we're leaning in the direction of being distracted. We're like, ooh, this is kind of sparkly. And we, we way lean into that part. Another aspect of denial that I think is I always like to mention when I talk about it is that denial is not necessarily bad. I don't want us to look at denial as something bad. I think we need to remind ourselves that denial is designed to protect us, right? We all are in denial to some degree all the time about something, right? And that denial is designed to protect us from being overwhelmed by the experience of Samwega, that experience of like, wow, there is a lot of suffering in the world. There are moments, as you all know, where our hearts are feeling strong, our minds are feeling stable, where we can be vulnerable to the depth of suffering in our own life and the suffering around us, and we can hold that space. And there are times where the heart's like, no, I I can't handle this right now. And so we suppress or repress that contact with whatever it is that's making us suffer or could make us suffer if the insight were to come up too strongly, too quickly. It's important to know that, yes, if we're not in this energy of Samwega, we might be in the throes of distraction. We might be leaning towards that denial space. And we just remind ourselves, denial's okay, but you don't wanna like camp there. You don't wanna build a house in denial. You can like visit it on occasion to protect your heart and to not be in contact with things if it's not healthy, but we don't wanna live in denial, right? It's not a place we want to spend a lot of time, but there might be times where it's just healthy to push stuff away. It's during the pandemic, I'm sure many of us were like at a point where there was so much overwhelming upheaval that was going on that at a certain point, we're like, I just can't deal with A, B right now. I'll deal with C, but I'm just going to distract myself from this other thing. Because the energy of the chaos of what was going on was just so intense. You know, this trauma of this global pandemic. So denial is where we hang out. We go back to the castle, right? We entertain ourselves with sensuality. We distract. We try and suppress to the degree we can. And that's okay as long as we keep our foot or our eyes to the gate, and we have this intention to leave and to go trade up for something different. The other antithesis to this is, of course, the obvious symbol of the Buddha immersed in sensual activity. So in the castle, the idea is that the Buddha is surrounded by sensual pleasures. He's surrounded by sensual pleasures. And we all know within the context of the Dharma that clinging and craving and happiness of the material kind is based on the sense doors. It's based on sense contact. So sensual craving is this sort of middle happiness. It's a kind of happiness that isn't as great as say the jhanas or compassion or tranquility from the enlightenment factors or liberation itself. But the Buddha acknowledges, yeah, you can get happiness a certain Not long-term, certainly, but you can get some happiness from sense pleasures. So sometimes if we're not 
motivated to practice, if we don't have that agitated urgency to trade up for a higher happiness, that just means the heart is probably clinging to some sense pleasures. It's really enjoying right now, wanting or having more of sensuality. There's something in our lives that we're clinging to and it feels good right now. And the heart is hoping it will last forever and that it will be permanent. And then maybe when it wears off, then we have that moment of like, whoa, there's a higher happiness here. And then Samwega fills the heart. And then we get energized for practice once again, because we've sort of detached ourselves from the materialism um, of the experience. And one of the differences I'd like to make between this choice for a higher happiness and the material happiness that the Buddha talks about is that we can, as householders, we can have one foot in the material world because we do, because we have kids and mortgages and debt and jobs and all of this stuff. So obviously there's going to be sense pleasures in all of this world that we're in. And, and the difference though, is that if we get too far immersed in that materialism, then we end up locked in the castle. So when we look at the castle metaphor, the, the Buddha was under guard. That's why he had to sneak out. So he was locked in. And that locked in metaphor for us and our own experience is when we decide that sensual pleasures are the higher happiness. When we decide or get lost in the delusion that it's not worth it to trade up. To, it's not worth it to leave. It's not worth it to go out. And so the materialism of the human heart and I'm not talking about greed here. I'm really talking about material sense pleasures. That energy can trap us. And so at that point, the challenge is we've sort of convinced ourselves that in this world, the best I can do is kind of be aware of suffering. Sure, there's some suffering, but you know, there's a lot of fun stuff too. I'm not going to try to necessarily get out of the suffering in the spiritual sense or find a happiness that's more pleasurable than the sense doors. I'm just going to chill in the sense door pleasures and get as much of it as I can, as long as I can, while acknowledging, sure, you know, it's not all roses and rainbows and whatever, but but I'm not going to try and get out. I'm not going to invoke Samwega. So on its extreme end, this touching down into the material type of happiness becomes a form of denial. We just get locked into the castle again and we, we can't get out. So we really need to look at that. If the heart is not enlivened in our practice with at least some sense that there is material happiness, but then there's this higher happiness that I'm seeking. And I want to make sure the energy of my heart is directed outward to this higher happiness. And then the other thing about these, like, as I said, with denial, it's not like any of these are bad per se. It's just, you don't want to live. If you're going to walk the path, you got to be careful about how much time you spend in these heart mind realms, right? How much time are you spending immersed in the sense pleasure? Are you practicing enough to get the energy of Samwega in the other direction? Because as householders, we're going to have hobbies and we're going to have art and we're going to have outdoor activities we're interested in and friendships and all of those fun things, movies or whatever, because we're not monastics. But we just need to ask ourselves, am I building a wall and a castle and living in the castle of materialism? Have I built denial around my heart or is it open to Samwega and Pasada? Do I have a sense of confidence and a sense of urgency even that there is something greater than what I'm experiencing uh, day to day? 
So that's how those two emotions, like I said, they're hard to define. They're defined in context of the Buddha's journey, Buddha's journey out. And so I'll just talk about one other thing to kind of tie up the energy of the definition of the spiritual path. And the main thing that I think is really important when we're talking about Samwega is that Samwega and Pasada, when we invoke those energies, when we get in touch with that quality within ourself, we're doing two kinds of actions. One, we are leaning into suffering. We are acknowledging that suffering can be a doorway to awakening. That's a huge distinction. When we're cultivating Samwega, we look at suffering as an op opportunity for awakening. When we're too far towards denial and material happiness, when suffering arises, we feel that push away, that aversion, the hindrances pop up. We're like, eh, no, don't want to go there. So when we look at Samwega, how we know we're in touch with it is that suffering arises and we're like, ooh, an opportunity for practice. Great. I'm going to like, this is an opportunity for compassion and equanimity and mindfulness. We look at suffering as part of the life journey. As we fall into the other end, we push away more. We're more averse to suffering. We don't want to see it. We don't want to touch it. And that's where we start moving towards the opposite side, which is more of the uh, denial side. And then the other part of it is just when we're in touch with Samwega, then that also means we are looking for pleasure in spiritual practice. That consciously we're saying, can I create joy? Can I create things like gratitude, self-compassion, loving kindness, and can I get pleasure out of them? And that's what Samwega says is like, there's a higher happiness, therefore I'm looking to practice that. I'm looking to generate that in my life. I'm looking for deep connections of a spiritual interaction with other people, Sangha. <laughs> like, what is that word when we all connect and practice together? Sangha. We look for opportunities for Sangha. We look to surround ourselves with noble friendships. We lean in that direction. And when we're on the opposite side, we don't do that. We're, we're disconnected. We have a sense of being cut off and being disconnected. So that's the way we kind of look at where is this in my life? If I'm using like a litmus test or a thermometer to kind of say, okay, Samwega and Pasada is one energy and denial, suppression, repression, all that other stuff, pushing away is on the other side. And we just look at again, you know how I love the teeter-totter metaphor. We just look, can we balance these two energies in our life? Can we look every so often and ask ourselves, am I outside the castle walls? Am I hanging out there comfortably? Am, am I cool with it? Or do I wish I was really back inside in the comfort of denial? Can I get back into there? Or am I out way outside the castle walls and am I feeling like the practice is supporting me with my heart touching dukkha, touching suffering, and I'm able to really get into that and really find a way of, of being in that experience. Um, Achan Cha called the uh, material happiness a, a form of decorating our prison cell. That's how he called it, right? <clears throat> and so this is one of those things that we have to look and say, are we still stuck inside or are we outside? And that's how the Buddha described it. And that's why you can see, if you really think about that, why that concept is so compatible with the other two true, uh, the other two qualities the Buddha invited us to cultivate, a commitment to be truthful and a commitment to be observant. And if you remember in the observant part, what we're observing is the depth of suffering 
and the depth of happiness and looking at those two qualities and saying, oh, am I really suffering here? Or am I denying that they're suffering because I just don't want to have to do the work to get out? And looking and observing truthfully our sense of happiness and saying, oh, is there self here in this happiness? Is this, is this happiness I'm experiencing long-term? Is there any harm I'm doing to myself? Like those observations are what the Buddha is asking us to do. And when we have the fire of Samwega under our feet, we're more likely to be truthful with ourselves. We're more likely to be observant and willing to observe exactly what happens as we move through the world, which of course means the path itself will open up quite delightfully. Not easily, but delightfully once you, once you start walking on it. So that's Samwega in a, uh, in a heartbeat, so to speak, at least my interpretation of Samwega and how I've experienced it in my own practice and how I've kind of used it with the factors of awakening. Thanks for listening. Appreciate your attention. For those of you who need to head out, it is 831. We're right on time. For those who can stay, we will next week, we will talk about heedfulness. Heedfulness is another one of these qualities that the Buddha talks about for preparatory for the path. So we'll talk about what does it mean to do the practice well and how do we do it without ego or a sense of striving or clinging to the outcome? So heedfulness is another student quality that the Buddha talked about that we need to have on the path. So we'll talk about that next week. Much love to you if you have to go. Otherwise, we can stay for a few minutes and we'll just uh, wish each other well for a few. All right, let's pop. couple intentional breaths, full deep breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth, and on the exhale, let's really relax into the body. Let's bring awareness to the part of the body where we notice the aliveness of this moment. And let's just take refuge there for a breath or two, noticing the truth of what is so, and holding that observation, that reality, in direct contact with our mindful hearts. And grounded in this embodied being, in touch with this breath energy, let's close tonight by asking ourselves this question. If I could wish anything for all beings in this moment and know it would come to pass, what might that wish be? Let us call that aspiration to the altar of our hearts.
Thank you so much, my friends, for co-creating this experience with me. I love seeing you. I will see you next week. Be well. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.